Thank you, Bennett. Good morning. It's great to see you guys uh, this morning as we are uh, continuing on into a, a new series here. We're beginning a, a, a different kind of journey. And if you're our guest, I want to welcome you to Olive Branch. Uh, my name is Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor at Olive Branch. And we are, uh, we are indeed, we're starting this series this week called Travel Plans. And uh, really kind of discussing various aspects about travel and, and especially when it pertains to life. When, um, when I... Um, when I think of travel, I think back to uh, a few years ago, my wife and I decided we were going to go visit a friend who was, he was going to Harvard at the time. I think he still is. And we were going to um, just head out to Boston, meet him. We wanted to see what Harvard looked like. We wanted to kind of join in, gather around, uh, gather around Boston, see all the stuff there. And so we decided, hey, you know, we got four kids. We want to go see Boston. We better do this cheap. So my wife was like, I got the answer. I got the solution. So we got on a bus in Riverside, a Greyhound bus, and for three days and three nights, went to Boston. And I, I heard the groaning. I've heard that all services. What, what are you groaning about? No. Um, it, it was an endurance test, but it, honestly, it was amazing on the way there, meeting all the different kinds of people and being in Boston. And yeah, you were tired, but you got a week there and we got to experience kind of a lot in Boston. Then we got on the bus and started heading back and we got into New York. And as we pulled into New York, we pulled up and we pulled in, we got out, we're running around the bus terminal. We got to the other bus and we didn't want to be late. There's a big long line, and we're like, ah, oh, we hated the big long lines because it meant we probably were going to get separated in the bus and whatnot. But we find out that this line is just sitting there. We're like, what is going on with this line? Why aren't we getting in the bus? It was way past the, the departure time. We start asking around. Forty-five minutes rolls by, an hour rolls by. We're like, we are totally going to miss our next connection. What is going on? They go, oh, you, you know, the the other the bus driver didn't want to do it. He woke up and said, hey, I'm not coming. Literally, I'm like, welcome to New York, you know? It's like the bus driver decides, I'm not going to drive the bus at 2 a.m., so let's get out of here. And so we literally sat there for hours. Finally, he showed up. We took off and landed in Pittsburgh where we missed our connection. And the Pittsburgh bus stop's in the middle of nowhere. It's not even in downtown Pittsburgh, so you can go hang out and check stuff out. No, it, you, you don't have anywhere to go. You have nothing to do. And we were there for four hours until we decided to take another bus, the rest of the people were going to be there for another two to three hours waiting for the next connection bus. And so this is the longest layover of our lives in a bus station. I've never seen that much MSNBC in my life. And uh, it it was just, it was so busy and so just disturbing. I began to think about the ride home going, you know, maybe we shouldn't have taken the bus. If we had known that this was going to happen, maybe we would have changed our plans. And isn't that true? If you knew you were going to go on one of these vacations and you knew the place was awful, all the reviews were saying, don't come here. This is lousy. This is, it's horrible. This is going to, this year you think you're going to in paradise. It's going to be a dis, just, just awful. Would you change your travel plans? And if you knew and you checked in, you looked at what the place was like and where you were going, and it was going to be awesome. How excited would you be to go? How much would you be anticipating going on that journey? And how much is that true for life? That if we, we, we understand that life is a journey, nobody gets out of this alive. We're all going to die. We're all going to end up finding ourselves at the end of our lives, going somewhere. And how many of us have really spent the time to sit down and look at it and examine the differences between, hey, we're, what, is this, what is this destination after death? What's ultimately going to happen? What is this thing heaven? Is there really this thing hell? How does this all work out? Because there, we're all on a journey and we need to think about it. If we're going to be this serious about looking at our itinerary and making sure everything's lined up for when we're going to get to whatever travel we're going to, vacation we're taking to, to whatever country, 
why we, shouldn't we do that when it comes to heaven? Shouldn't we do that when it, when it comes to the afterlife? And, and perhaps maybe we should even examine hell and understand what's really going in, on here so that we can uh, get prepared and maybe change our travel plans. And that's what we're going to do in this series and really look at it because there's a lot of misconceptions out there about these locations. Isn't that true? How many of you guys have heard just various random conceptions about heaven? Like, you know, oh, heaven's got clouds and, and then there's harps and, and angels and the angels are little fat babies, you know, floating by and you're supposed to sit up there singing songs forever. I mean, I grew up and I always thought that heaven was something like that or I heard it was like this, you're in this big church building and everybody was singing songs and usually it was hymns forever and ever and ever and ever and 10,000 years, not a day has gone by yet. You know, it's kind of thing. Um, and I used to think, I, I used to talk to people and they're like, heaven boring. That's awful. What a horrible idea. Yet everybody gets to go. It's an awful idea. People get bored at the thought of heaven, but everybody gets to go. If you're an American, you're on your way, unless you did something really, really bad. Everybody pretty much is going to go to heaven. That's kind of the American mindset. On the other side, you get hell, and you get a lot of interesting things about that, like, you know, the ideas of literal flames and devils poking people's eyes out, and there's, you know, like on medieval cathedral painting stuff, too. You know, it's, this, it's just going to be this, um, this cool place. I had one guy actually tell me, I look forward to hell. We're going to have parties there. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to waste it every night. I'm going to have drugs. It's going to be great. I'm like, Mm, I don't think it's what you think it is, you know. And it was just this kind of disparity about all these different things. And then in the church, you got confusion about, you know, when you die, you're going to go straight to heaven. And in heaven, you're going to be there forever. And it's kind of like you're floating around God. And you get all these weird discouragement. Anybody heard all this confusion out there? All right, I'm not alone. And I got to be careful because this is like one of my favorite topics to talk about. But um, so my time's, my time's got to be tight. But I want to I I talk about this in a different way. There's so much of this is conjecture and, and just imagination. But how do we get answers? How do we land on, on, on reality? I mean, we could read the books about guys who had out-of-body out experiences and went to hell or went to heaven and came back and wrote a book about it. Or we could go with the man who truly rose from the dead. We go with Jesus Christ, who claimed he was God, claimed he was God on earth, died, and God brought him back from life to prove that case. So why don't we examine the one who created the places? Why don't we examine the God of, the God of heaven and earth and what he has said in the Bible? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And so if you want, we're going to look at Jesus' words. Open your Bible up to Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, and we're going to begin to kind of roll through this section of the New Testament, examining what Jesus has to say about this concept of what happens after death. And so um, this section is actually a story. It's not necessarily a, a parable. Many people call it a parable, but it's a story. And it's one of the few places Jesus actually uses a name. And he uses the name Lazarus in this section, which is odd for Jesus to put a name into any of his stories. So many uh, scholars believe that he's probably pointing to some poor man in the town that everybody knew about and using his narrative to describe not just the afterlife, but ultimately the, the concept of the rich and the poor and how it all works out ultimately in the way that we treat each other. So let's take a look at this. It begins in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and, was, and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man. So it looks like his family would drop him off here. His name was Lazarus, covered with sores. And so this man's sick, and he's not doing well. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Another way to put that is he desired to eat from their garbage cans. 
And moreover, even the dogs, and that's not like your pet Fido, that's, a, that's literally like the coyotes that roam out here and if you live up in the hills up here, is the, the, these dogs, these wild dogs would come and lick his sores. In other words, they were getting a good taste to figure out if they wanted to eat him. So this guy is vulnerable, this guy needs protection, this guy is in a situation where he has nothing, and the rich man doesn't do anything about it. So the poor man died and was carried carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so we have this interesting situation where you, you... you have both of the men seeming to be in a place called Hades. And this word Hades is actually a term that is used in the New Testament to define something in the Old Testament. And and it's defined as the word Sheol, or the grave. And everybody who dies, as it seems to be indicated in the Scripture, everybody who dies winds up in, quote-unquote, Hades. When you die, that's ultimately where we will enter. And this idea of Hades is interesting because you think of Hades as like you know, the god of Hades and hellfire and all this crazy stuff. And it's a Greek loan word defining that word grave, Sheol. It's the abode of the dead, the location where people's departed spirits go to stay. And so what this is a picture of is a picture of the departed world. And so in this case, you see this two compartments almost. You have the torment or the judgment side, and then there's this other side, which is called paradise, this other concept of, of Abraham's side. And these two are distinguished. Oftentimes, this right side, this, well, I'm sorry, guys, I don't want to throw you in, into the torment side, but we'll just consider for this side, the idea of Hades is, the, is torment. It's also Hades. It kind of gets referenced in like that, or some of your Bibles will read hell. Um, some of outer darkness is another term, these kind of terms. But we'll deal with hell, the real hell, and the real outer darkness next week. This week, we just want to talk about this general location that we wind up in after we die called Sheol or Hades with these two compartments. And that's where we're going to start. Now, notice, first of all, that both men are conscious. You can read in here, and many times when you look at the life after life, humanity is conscious. We're not just going to die and go to sleep. It's not like when you have surgery and they put you under, right? You're under and then you're, you're asleep and then they get, do surgery and you wake up and you don't remember anything. A lot of people go like, see, look, right there. That proves that when you die, it's over. It's blank. It's beep. You know, it's just there's, the, the screen goes off and there's nothing there. Except for the fact that in the Christian concept, your spirit is still inside your body when you're asleep. And your spirit is subject to what your body is, is doing. And so literally, your, your spirit's going to not remember things or it's going to be using its processes in different ways because it works with your body. Oftentimes, what we've discovered is people in surgery who have died have had out-of-body experiences, and this has become a very large category of information in the sciences. Uh, and up to, stuff, up, to, up to certain instances where people are repeating exactly word for word what was going on inside the hospital room, that there were a pair of red shoes sitting on the roof that nobody knew, and they actually went up there and found them. These kind of things have come to the idea that many people are coming to the belief that there is actually consciousness after death, that you can actually, you exist beyond this body. It's undesirable in the Christian concept, but that it's true. And so there's this conscious reality that we go to this place called Sheol, this temporary location of the grave, and it's only temporary. You see, when you die, you don't go straight to your, uh, to to the uh, place that's always, you know, going to be your home. It's a temporary location. Paul will talk about it at one point where he's saying, you know what? I don't want to be naked. I don't want to be disembodied. 
the, the Jewish thought always landed with the, the return of Christ and the resurrection. They looked forward to that as the end. Not this heaven what we're t- talking about in the sense of a present heaven. Not this Sheol, this, this location of disembodiment. They always look to the resurrection. And so this is a temporary location. This is not the last stop. It's a lot like if you were on a cruise and you hit a port and you were going to stay at that port for a long time before you got back on and went to your actual destination. This is, this is kind of a layover. So we're going to talk about this layover and this location in this way. And so let's take a look back down here again. And it gives us a couple inf- some information about these two locations. First of all, it starts this way. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Later, it will say in verse 24, um, or sorry, verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, speaking to the rich man, you received good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. Now he is comforted here. So on this side of paradise, on this side of comfort, on this side of what we would call heaven, is this thing called Abraham's side. Anybody have any, a different translation that says Abraham's bosom? Anybody got that one? I always love that one. Rocking my soul in the bosom of Abraham. That's that, that old kid song we used. It's a funny term. What in the world does Abraham's bosom mean? That's what as a kid, I'm always like, that sounds so weird. It's like, hi, Abraham. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't want to go there. But Abraham's bosom is actually a, a very interesting term. Whenever you see the word bosom, or side. I mean, it sounds like an eternal worship service when we're sitting, if it's, you're sitting at Abraham's side, you know, in rows. Everybody's at somebody's side. No, this is the idea of sitting down at a table. And in the table, in the feast world, when you sat down at a table, you didn't sit down like you do in a chair. You reclined at a table where you sat laying down with your arm and then you would eat. And that only happened when you were at a meal and mainly when you're at a feast. You see, on the positive side, when we look at this, after death, the forgiven go and they begin the party with God. That's really what it's saying. Now, what he's doing is he's looking at this, is we're looking at this guy who's sitting at a feast with Abraham, who's eating at a meal, having fellowship with him, hanging out with all the other people in the mind of the Jewish people, and all Jewish people, in the mind of the Christians, it's those who've been forgiven, hanging out at a meal, at a party together. I mean, you you enter into a festivity, a feast, and you're sitting there, and you're enjoying it, and feasts were huge in the first century. In the first century, the feast was the biggest deal in any town, because when somebody did a feast, they were, they were using all their goods. They were pouring out everything they had to bring everybody together so that you could get together and hang out. It was conversation, and talking, and enjoyment, and festivity, and game, and ceremonies. It typically was a wedding feast, and all of this is coming together in this picture. So here is Abraham, here is Lazarus, who never got to eat at the feast of the rich man's table, and now at Abraham's side at the feast of the righteous, at the feast with the Messiah, with Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder that Paul will later say, ah, to be separated from the body is to be present with my Lord, is to be present with God. And what he was saying was, when I die, I'm going immediately to be with, with Jesus. I'm going immediately to be with God. And where? At a feast, at a celebration. And that's what it's appearing to say, is that this place is defined best by party central. Not hell. Hell's not that we're going to party. No, heaven is the place where people party. 
guys, that should excite you because this is supposed to be like a little piece of heaven here on earth and that doesn't mean we're like, we are very holy. No, holiness is exciting and parties. Oh, wow, I expected more than that. So <laughs> We're apparently not party people in this place, are we? And the point is simply that when you start to realize that this is about joy, this is about fun, this is about excitement, and it also the term used in this area is called paradise. Now, the word paradise refers back to the Garden of Eden. And when you go back to the Garden of Eden and you go into the garden, it's the one place where God provided everything, he gave you everything you needed, he treated humanity as his children, and there was intimacy with God. And so it's no wonder that this party is about being in the presence of God. If you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, that doesn't sound like a good idea. That doesn't sound like fun. And I know, but have you ever invited a pastor to your party? I haven't. I haven't had a chance yet because I keep showing up. And they get, no, my wife does every night. But the, um, we, 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 we have a party at our, when we eat stuff and my wife's hiding things because the pastor's here. No, I'm just kidding. But that's what happens. On an airplane, I sit there and you're always avoiding telling them what you do for a living. Because you're like, they're like sitting there next to you and they're being themselves and you're finding all this. And you're like, oh, awesome. You do that. Yeah, man, I haven't had a bit. Can I have some more waitress? Thank you. Oh, yeah. You're like, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Actually, yes, I'm very good. And uh, you can tell I don't need any more. And it's just like, thanks. You know, there was a person in our church who, when their daughter was watching something inappropriate on television, they said, hey, what would you do if the pastor was here? So I could turn it off, you know? And there's like, and that's what it is. And so people think of when you go to have a, you know, we're going to go have a party with God. Whoa, boy, we're going to be hiding a lot of stuff, aren't we? Because God's here. Oh, you can't have that. You can't have that. And you can't do this. And you can't do that. Watch the jokes. And, and we really think that somehow God's the party killer. He's going to destroy it all. And it's just not the case. When you have the presence of God, the party's way bigger than you could probably imagine. I mean, we think of God as this, this killer of, of, of joy and fun, but we forget he invented the idea of joy. He invented fun. I, I, I'm, I'm one of those weird people in the world that enjoys the Dos Equis commercials because they're so funny. The most intriguing men. And, you know, this, this guy, and you're like, God, in, God is that guy. <laughs> you think about it. You're like, I was in World War II. I stormed the beaches of Normandy. Whoa. And I was standing there in the middle of Hitler's den when he did this and he didn't see me. And you're just like, you know everything. Yes, I was hearing this. Oh, yeah. When I started the sun, the combustion, he's the best scientist in the world. So every science geek is like, hi, God, I really have a question. You know, and then he's like the most creative individual. And so all the artists are like, how did you get the colors to like fall in that way? And oh, here. And he's like, God is the most intriguing being in the universe. He made everything. He's majestic. He's grand. I mean, some people think the idea of of being in heaven is literally just sit there looking at God going, he's so beautiful. And Tesfra's like, yeah. And even to me, because I'm I'm made in in this world and and get to experience God and his glory, but we'll leave that for the heaven conversation. But the reality of what's going on in this party in paradise is that you're at the presence of God. And it's like you sit there and you get to go like this. I get to be with him? Do you remember, if, you've got, if you got married, do you remember sitting down that first night at your dinner table, after, you know, maybe at the honeymoon or whatever, and you're sitting there going, I can't believe this is happening. You're just excited to be with that person. 
you wake up like a month later, you're like, I can't believe we're married. I get to I get to do this with you. This is so cool. Yeah, that wears off after time. But the, uh, <laughs> but the point is that doesn't wear off in heaven with God. You're sitting there going, I get to be with you. This is incredible. I can't believe this. This is great. And we don't hide anything because there's no sin. It's gone. In Hebrews, it actually tells us what the people are like there now. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, well, he's talking about when you've come, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's how he defines those in heaven. They're the spirit of the righteous made perfect. Those who are right with God, now they've been made perfect. Sin is done. Wow. I mean, sin's over. You get to go to a party and you're not a sinner. So you, can't, you, you, you die, you come there, angels usher you in, you're standing there and you're like, you look at this giant chart for the seating arrangement. You're going, I don't know where I am. And the angel goes, here, I'll take you. And he pulls you over. And you get this seat and you sit, and you, and you sit down next to this guy. And you're like, who are you? And he's like, I was a bum on Skid Row in LA and Jesus saved me. And you're like, awesome! Because you're not a sinner anymore going like, Oh, why don't I get seated next to this guy? And you look over and your spouse is sitting next to George Washington having an amazing conversation. You're like, you're not going to feel jealous. You're going to be like, oh, look, they got with Paul. I don't want to be with Paul. I got a bum. You know, it's not, you're going to be like, dude, I love you. You love me. Ah, hug. You know, because the sin is gone. You're going to look over and you see George Washington. You're going to be like, I got a long time to meet with George. Meantime, how are you doing? When sin is gone, we just don't act the same. See, if there was a party down in, 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 this, in Hades where we have stopped, we're, not, we're still sinners, you wouldn't have that kind of, you'd have like, why am I sitting next to you? Oh, what, you? Oh, great, this, is over. this isn't even the food I ordered. Man, the service here stinks. That's what that world was like. But when you've got the sin gone, it's gorgeous, it's awesome, it's exciting. And we don't even realize how big it is. You know how, if you want to understand how amazing it is, you have to really study the Bible because the better you know God, the more you'll understand about heaven. Because it's his presence that makes it this way. Second, you wind up in the reality that in heaven there's this point which we're going to, our lives are going to be brought before God and before Jesus Christ and all the things that we've done are going to be laid out and the stuff that isn't worth it is going to be burned away and the stuff that was worth what we did, the good things that God gave us to do because we found our passion, we lived it out, that's all going to be a reward to us. And I imagine he's going to go, look, these are the great things, here's your rewards. We're going to go like, oh, I don't deserve these, you did it through me, here, you take them, no, you take them, no, you take them, and back and forth. Several hundred years, we'll do that. Eventually, we'll realize how this works out. But it is a place of blessedness. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of wonder. It's a party. It's joy. It's peace. It's exciting. It's where you're headed if you're forgiven. Everybody here that's sitting at the table has one thing in common. They will all know, save one person, they will all know that they deserve the other location. And only one sitting at that table will have ever felt what it was like to be in the other location, and that's Jesus. The other location isn't easy to look at, but the Bible gives us plenty of information on what this this kind of holding tank in Hades is like. And it begins 
to move forward because the unforgiven begin, they begin, after death, they begin in the suffering, unfortunately, of justice. And this is how it works. Look at verse 24. So he's found himself in torment in Hades, and he lifted up his eyes and saw Father Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, come have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So notice he's in some kind of agony. Some, this is describing his flame. There may be flames there. We have no idea what's literal and what's figurative. But in the reality of this situation, it is a kind of agony. And part of that pain, I believe, is because we are separated from God. You see, right now we experience his grace, his love, his truth, his justice, his, his kindness, and his patience. All of that is removed when you enter into judgment. All that is gone. He's just given you what you wanted. You want to be you? You want to lead your life? You want to do what you want to do? Fine, here. And it's tormenting. If you've ever been depressed and been alone and in the depths of your soul and, and isolated, you know how painful it is. If you've ever experienced psychologically the guilt that overwhelms you because of something you've done to the point that it breaks you down, you know how painful it is. I'm not saying all of hell is a psychology. There is definitely a punishment going on. But this is a reality. It is, it is, a, it is a justice. And, but it's temporary. But it's temporary like jail is temporary. I hope you've never been to jail, but... If you have, you know the guys in jail, they talk about it, but it's nothing like prison. Because jail is where you wait to go to prison. Jail is where you sit until the sentencing occurs and then they send you to prison where the real stuff starts happening. And that's what the same thing is here. It's sort of like jail, waiting for the judgment day, waiting for the sentencing. And then the resurrection comes, the sentencing is delivered, and then hell hits. And we'll talk about that next week. But what we're looking at here is this, this suffering that exists there because we're away and we're stuck in our sin. Notice how stuck in, this man, in sin this man is. Look at it again. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Is that begging? Is he going, please have mercy on me? I think he's saying, you know what? Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus down here to give me a drink. The intent of the language in the Greek seems to be that he's still demanding things. And he's demanding it from the poor dude from his, who sat in front of his house. His attitude hasn't changed at all. He still thinks he should be on top of the world. I believe, I believe from this passage, the people that are in this place, everybody there will think they deserve to be in the other. I deserve not to be here. I even think Hitler will sit there and justify if he meets other people and say, I don't deserve to be down here. I did great things for my country. I wasn't an evil person. I really think everybody there will justify themselves, make excuses about themselves, while the other side is sitting there going, we know we should be over there. They're saying, we deserve up here. And so this man is yelling and screaming about how he needs to bring, send this guy down here. It's not Abraham, come do it. It's send that Lazarus guy. Bring him here. Give me a drink of water. Because I'm agony. I'm in anguish in this flame. That, I think, is the most awful thought. This torment isn't from demons and angels and stuff. It's from being sinful ourselves. 
You don't need demons and, and things to poke at you and prod at you. In fact, we know they're not in this location because at this point in, in history, demons, when they do things wrong and are finally put away, they're put in a place called the abyss. Um, when Jesus approaches a, a man who's possessed by demons, he approaches him off the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, comes up to him, and this is what the demons say to him as he's about to cast them out. He said, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Whatever the abyss is, they don't like it. And it's scary. And from what we understand, the abyso, the abyss, is the location that demons are contained until they are released for the judgment. And so you have this very reality that in, in this holding tank for humanity, there aren't angels poking and prodding. This is just, this is a waiting place for the resurrection. God never intended it to be this way. God never intended for us to end up in a situation where we're going to be judged. You see, he creates hell for the devil and his angels, and we just decide to go join their team. But this is the just location where we wait. And once you're incarcerated, you just wait for that sentence. This isn't, this isn't changeable. Notice how it goes on. Look at verse 26. Or verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now... He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There's no foyers into hell to go, let's go rescue people. It's not going to happen. It's fixed. It's finalized. It's settled. And then the picture of a chasm is a, just a picture of the finality. You can't get over it. You can't end it. This isn't purgatory. You don't work your way out of it and end up over here. You don't work your way out of this torment to wind up in paradise. And that's the most heart-wrenching thing to any of us who sit here because the bottom line is, and hear me, this may be like, oh, this is like Christian gobbledygook, right? Look, you can think Jesus is a liar. You can think he's crazy. Or you can continue to think he's a good teacher. If he's a good teacher, then you have to at least accept the fact that he said he's Lord and that this is how he's described eternity. And I go with the guy who rose from the dead and it's not easy. I mean, people don't make this stuff up. They also do for religious purposes to scare people in so they can obey their rules and give them money. If you become a Christian, you don't have to give us money. Let me just say that right now. You don't come to church to give money. You don't come to church to fall into a bunch of rules. This isn't a scare tactic to get you to buy our goods. All we got is a message from God. That he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that all this suffering that we're talking about doesn't have to land on you, it can land on him. I think there are too many people sitting in suffering now. Don't you? Don't you think it's about time we just close the door and say, it's full, no vacancy. 
Because the church has woken up to give the gospel of freedom to enter into eternity. Nobody deserves to go into this paradise. Nobody in this room gets to go because they deserved it. We don't even get to be called Christians because we deserve it. And if you think it's your good works to get you here, you're wrong and you're in trouble because you don't have enough good works to cover the junk of our hearts that gets us landed in the other location. This isn't about good or bad. This is about forgiven or unforgiven. This is about grace. And God's love and his gift, he does not want anyone to have to face the condemnation. He has given his son that if we would simply accept him, the relationship with God comes, and with that comes all of eternity with him, which is that description of paradise. And I need to make that clear because the warning signs here and what the Bible's talking about in these warnings is intentional. Notice how it goes on. This is Jesus talking. I'm not making this stuff up. Look right here in the Bible. He says, the man then turned. The rich man then said, I beg you, Father, to send him, talking about Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers so they can warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Do you ever think maybe the people who are sitting in torment don't want anybody else to come join them? They're sitting there going, I don't care who's up there. Don't come here. I don't care what Yahoo says about the location and how good it is. It's bad. Change your travel plans. Father Abraham answered back, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to him, they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And what we have here is a classic situation where if we're not willing to listen to what the Bible speaks about these things, why would we listen to someone who rises from the dead? Why would we listen to Jesus? Why would we be convinced that he knows what he's talking about? I don't want anybody in my family, in the church, to have to face their just desserts. I don't want to face them. And I hate to think that Jesus had to take it for me. It's humbling. But it is the only way out. You can't work it off. There's no karma to destroy There's no amount of ceremonial washings and church goings and stuff like that. If you've been coming to this church because you think if you just get here and you keep coming and you come on time and you you read your Bible and you pray and you're in a small group, "Ah, I'm set for for heaven. That has nothing to do with it. You're doomed. Because you think you're standing on things that are not even going to get you out. The only thing out is to depend upon the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. That Jesus has borne our punishment, the judgment. It's going to land on somebody, either you or Jesus. And for anybody who enters into paradise, the only reason is because Jesus shielded them from their judgment. And he'll be the only one in eternity who faced the sufferings of Hades and hell and is in heaven. Everyone else is there because he took it for them.
The beauty is this. You don't clean up and do a bunch of stuff to receive this. It's a gift given to you by God. He loves us that much. He just said, look, I'm going to make it as simple as possible. I do everything. You trust me. Why would he do this? Again, the thief on a cross sitting next to Jesus was hanging there, struggling for his own life as the other one ridiculed Jesus. And suddenly he said, don't you realize we deserve our sins? Don't you realize we deserve what we're getting? This guy's innocent. He looked at Jesus and said, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus told him these words. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, it's not about being baptized and getting all this stuff done, and members and tithing. And, uh, no. It's about trusting in the work that Jesus did. Why? So you can be with him. It's about a relationship with God. It's about knowing him. It's about enjoying that relationship with God. I hope we're agreed that this gift needs to be given everywhere we go. And that we should live in light of where we're headed. So Christians, I hope you'll join with me in being you know, ignited to bring as many people into paradise through his work as we can. Otherwise, would you bow your heads with me? You may be sitting there right now and you realize, hey, I've been leaning on all my good works to get out of this mess or I didn't even know I was in a mess. Maybe you think, hey, I've got too many sins. I, I can't be forgiven. Can I just tell you there's, there's no amount of sins that God can't forgive and there's no amount of work that can get you out of, the, out of justice. That we have to walk away from our good works as much as we have to walk away from our sins. The only way to receive eternity, the only way to walk in heaven with God and to know God is by having Jesus Christ bear that judgment to repair your relationship with God. And if you need Jesus to forgive you that sin and repair your relationship, then what you need to do is trust his promise. That's it. So this morning, I I offer you an opportunity to trust that promise, not because I have any way to give it, but because God is always offering it. That through the word of God, he says, here is this gift. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to have a relationship with me. And it'll land you in eternity, yeah, in heaven. Maybe this morning you need to begin to have that relationship with God and let Jesus take the judgment and deal with, with your sin. That's where you're at and you'd like him to take that for you. You'd like to trust God's promise. I want to give you a chance to just indicate it to me by raising your hand. I want to pray with you. You're just walking away from the good you're walking away from the sin and you're trusting Jesus alone to walk you into heaven and repair your relationship with God. That's where you're at. Just let me know.